0: Hey, good morning everybody. Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development and we have Kyle King with us, who's the Managing Director of Capacity Building International. Hi, Kyle. Hi, how are you? Awesome to be speaking with you. Thanks for giving us some time.
1: Oh, no, my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation.
0: I really wanted to have you on the, the videocast um, because we had a fascinating talk last week about your experiences and what you do and how you do it, and I, I just thought it would be wonderful for people to hear, particularly our emergency management students, to think about where their careers could go and how they could make an impact, not just in their local community, but around the world. So I'd love for you to just share part of your journey as an introduction, and then we'll dig into it.
1: Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so I actually, I started my career about uh, 30 years ago, um, which is, you know, when I think about it, it's just crazy. But I um, started my career about 30 years ago. I started out, as many people do, I was started out in the U.S. Marine Corps uh, or in the U.S. military. And then I actually was in uh, aircraft rescue and firefighting as my initial sort of entry into the, into the military. And then, of course, I, after eight years, I, I got out and I progressed over to the U.S. Department of Defense defense fire and emergency services. And that's where I kind of started from there and get onto the emergency services component of, um, my career. And I, I did that, um, for a few years and I ended up getting a call one day from a colleague of mine who was working overseas and he was on a a special project that was helping to rebuild, uh, fire and emergency services in post-conflict countries. And this was specifically in the Balkans and, and I was just sort of young and dumb enough to just say, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. No problem. And uh, I left and went overseas and I haven't looked back since. It's been 22 years now that I've worked overseas. I left the emergency services as a chief of operations and training. Um, And then I actually transitioned through a number of countries from the Western Balkans. I spent a couple of years in Afghanistan. And then um, about 2009 uh, transitioned over to NATO. And so I worked for NATO for about eight years as a civil emergency advisor helping to conduct security sector reform in Kosovo. So this was sort of a blend of, you know, this crisis management emergency services in the context of security sector reform in a a post-conflict country. Um, And then did that for about eight years. And then I formed Capacity Building International, where I'm now the managing director. And we support uh, U.S. government efforts in terms of what we call civil military emergency preparedness uh, efforts in terms of helping other nations, partner nations, Rebuild or build up, enhance their disaster management capabilities.
0: You, I think you might have just answered my question there. I was going to say, is it only when there's been a crisis or war, um, a disaster, that you go in and help rebuild, rebuild, or is it taking any country in any situation to another stage or another level? Yeah. So there's a there's a you know there's
1: a wide assumption that people that need uh, assistance or or probably need to be developed. More and I mean, if we're looking at Western European nations or more developed nations, United States, Canada, and things like that, I mean, there's there's not really much development that's needed. So if you are actually going to go somewhere and help a nation rebuild their emergency services or their disaster management capabilities, they're obviously in in a condition of you know needing assistance or needing uh, you know um, you know to evolve in their platforms or reform of some kind and. A lot of that, unfortunately, is tied to more unstable or unstable countries, right? And so a lot of that is emerging from post-conflict scenarios because that's also where a lot of the international uh, assistance goes to, right? So out of conflict or out of crisis, that's where a lot of the the international money flows from the various international organizations to help rebuild and stabilize. And that's actually where we got into one of the things that we like to do and what I like to consider in Capacity Building International is we like to use emerging management as a mechanism to increase stability. And that's something that I think has often been overlooked in these kind of post-conflict environments where you're trying to stabilize the environment and it's traditionally always been the issue of, okay, well, that's military security to increase stability to be able to secure this environment and then you know, keep everything safe. But when, from my perspective, coming from that civilian background and that crisis management background, it was always the issue of, okay, well, that's fine. I think that's absolutely a mandatory thing in terms of creating a safe environment. But then we get into this issue of, you know, how does the government perform in protecting its citizens, and when do we mm. actually look at things like interagency cooperation? When we look at disaster risk reduction, you know, when something happens, I mean, just because there's conflict doesn't mean there's not a disaster at some point. Right. And so then it's the issue of government performance in protecting its citizens, and then does that have an impact on perception of the population against the government? And we've seen that it's actually you know, could cause a lot less, loss of confidence in the government and then could lead to elections and all sorts of issues like that.
0: Hmm. So for those of us from a developed nation who, who don't, obviously COVID is a is a crisis that's being managed right now, but for those of us who haven't been in the types of situations you've been in, when you talk about safety and stability, really what does that mean? What are people struggling with?
1: Oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, What I've sort of found in a number of years that I've worked overseas, so we, it's sort of difficult to integrate the, let's say the emergency management perspective into the idea of stability in terms of the international community, especially as I was mentioning the terms of security and stability. And so those mean a very specific thing to organizations like NATO, UN and others. So that is one specific, you know, there's so many tools in the toolkit for that and that's how they're applied and we want to increase stability. And then people come in and do reform and and you know increase you know uh sustainable development goals you know education platforms and every and you know health and everything else but from my perspective you know when we talk about stability it's not only, it's it's sort of after the fact that we think that we've created this safe environment and then we talk about stability in terms of the ability to deliver public services right the ability to you know, have an ambulance service, especially for focusing just on the emergency services piece. And you know, what about fire departments? What about nine one one or one one two systems? What about the, the ability to ensure safety of a population that's not specifically related to conflict? So after conflict, these systems have been disrupted. They've been torn mm-hmm. down. They need to be reconstructed, and and rebuilt in a more you know oriented towards a, a more developed nation's way. You know, if you or even. Better if it, there's a regional context than you could copy from a regional context. But when I look at it from that perspective, I see that stability is also through the delivery of public services to ensure safety in the communities. Now, there's a unique paradox here where when we talk about resilience of communities, now this is an interesting sort of
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know, niche sort of perspective here, but post-conflict, there's an argument that could be made um, that... You could see that the communities that are still there, the families that are still there, these small communities that have gathered together that have lived through this conflict are actually far more resilient than if a population, let's say, in the United States, and the power goes out, right? And then it's all about you know, where's my, (laughs) how can I charge my phone? Well, the 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 family nucleus that exists in many of these post conflict nations, in terms of you know having lived through that, they've learned to be resilient. And so there's a real opportunity there to leverage that, right? They they have communities already that are well in touch with each other, family support right. structures, and there's opportunity to leverage that to actually increase resilience in the communities, um, as opposed to what is a difference of what we experience in the United States sometimes.
0: So when you look for resilience to see if resilience is 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 apparent, is there? What are you looking for? What does it mean resilience?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a huge question, and a lot of people sort of. Um, You know, still have a lot of questions around that. But if we could look at, you know, if I look at it and from the terms of let's just take how how NATO views resilience. So NATO has these resiliency, you know, baselines that they look at. And there's baselines, you know, there's there's critical infrastructure, there's transportation routes, there's, you know, food security, water security. There's all these sort of different aspects behind resilience that allows a, a nation to, you know, ensure that its security remains intact regardless of an incident. Um, and but, when I look at it from my perspective, one of the things that i 've seen coming from a, a crisis management background is the fact that you know the the aspect that we say all disasters are local has not changed, and it doesn't change internationally either i've been on a disaster where you know you're dealing with local police chiefs and they haven't had the fundamental understanding of you know how we it's so difficult not to generalize the entire context here, but, you know, what we might consider to be norms and standards in terms of disaster response. And they, they just simply don't have that uh, sort of understanding. And then I've also seen, you know, in, in, a, in a, like an avalanche, for example, the one person that was able to actually organize people and that the local community listened to was a local imam, right, of a religious leader. So mm-hmm. while the other institutions were sort of you know kind of debating about who was in charge and who was not in charge and and kind of going through the response portion and and things like that the the local community was was moving forward and trying to you know um, recover from this incident. So what I look at for specifically is I like to look at the communities. Like I said, you know, all disasters are local. That continues to exist in whatever space that we're operating in. And so I look at the local communities, but then we have to take a wider look um, because if we have already established a baseline that local communities have continued to exist, even through these very difficult times, and there is a degree of resilience that's already there, generally ingrained in local community structures and families and things like that. But then we have to look at the wider systems that were probably on, you know, diminished to a great extent because of this conflict situation or this crisis situation. So then we have to start taking a look at, you know, do they have power? Do they have clean water? Do they have systems mm. in place? And then as it develops over the years, then it becomes an issue of how can we take it further into, say, more food security? How can we do a better regional integration from enhanced, you know, nine one one or one one two systems? How can we do cross border cooperation for emergency relief? And it sort of progresses gradually from that community level through the delivery of services up to a national level and then interagency coordination and then, you know, national level exercises and it sort of progresses from there.
0: Hmm. Do you find that people who come in to do emergency response or re-establishing systems, do you find that they come in with the right sort of perspective about the value of the goodwill that communities have towards their religious leader or a tribal leader and do they engage with that well or is it, is it not engaged with well because of the the context or you know the society that the emergency managers come from internationally
1: well unfortunately there's enough not enough people working in this space um and and the reason why there's not enough people is because it's simply that's not where the funding is going to um so when we look at these types of international programs again the 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 origin of these types of programs are because of the fact that it was a post-conflict environment. And so that's generally wrapped up in the security architecture to an international crisis response. Everything outside, you know, in my context, everything outside the US borders is is considered a crisis, an international crisis. So everything is, is wrapped up in this crisis response operation if we talk about NATO. And because of that, there's, you know, only a certain numbers of tools in the toolkit And that's where the funding goes and emergency management is not necessarily one of those well-funded programs that are out there um, that are being used to help build or rebuild societies after conflict. And because of that, now there are international response mechanisms. So you have UN OCHA, you have the EADRCC, you know, these response coordination centers, you have teams that can respond internationally for search and rescue and do disaster relief. Now in those contexts, you know, as a response piece, then they are well adapted and well trained to work with local populations. But if we're talking about development, not just response, this is where Hmm. things get sometimes confused. Response is one thing and the international community is good at a response mechanism. But then what happens after the response? And that's where we have a gap. And so that's where it's a little bit difficult because then you see the vast majority of people that are doing the mentoring, the advising, the training and the equipment are all coming from a security sector piece Right. not an emergency management
0: piece. I find that is, that is often a gap. You know, I find in case studies, particularly when our students in emergency management are looking at how things were done, <clears throat> seems that there's a gap, a cultural gap between understanding yep. how local communities work and the power structures aren't really based on hierarchy. It's based on a history and it's based on relationships that maybe we don't understand, which could be like you said, the imam which engenders a lot of goodwill and respect and honor. And that person can say, okay, everyone, what do we think? We're going to do this. And everyone gets in behind it and it happens. Whereas coming from the West or Western perspective, we might have a completely different way of thinking about things and we miss that. There's this misunderstanding of cultural, I guess, empathy might be a word to use.
1: Well, I think we're all sort of fixated in our our perceptions or our ideas uh, from, of course, where we're from about how things should work. And, and that's one of the things I like to challenge because if I were to take somebody from the United States, for example, and we go to another country and we're doing emergency management type work or mitigation work or whatever the case is. And you know, we look at something like insurance. And what if I say, okay, whatever your assumptions are about property insurance, there is no insurance here. Like that mechanism for risk management is not a tool. So you've got to take that out of your toolkit. And then that generally disrupts a lot of thought patterns because that's something that we're sort of heavily relying on. Um, and in the many nations, you know, fire departments and fire brigades are not very well respected, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of like a lower tier job. So underfunded, not respected. Um, police could be viewed as corrupt and not trusted. Um, there may not be any type of communication systems that are in place. The government may may not have any confidence as far as responding and people may not want them there. And as you mentioned, there's... There's the different aspects of society which we don't even consider in our day to day lives, such as you know right. any t- type of clan based, you know um, things that live beyond. If we were to drew, draw municipalities, it goes beyond those borders.
0: Tell us about, if you can, a project that you've worked on or working on now, um, and the results that you've had or the focus that you had to bring to the to the situation.
1: Yeah, sure, um, well, one example I'll use is, is so I worked with NATO for a number of years in Kosovo specifically, and and again, the role of, of going into that was to be able to integrate the use of what we called civil protection or civil emergency advising into the security sector reform portfolio. And so in this specific case, uh, we were, you know, NATO is doing security sector reform with the Kosovo security forces. And one of the, the projects that I worked on was building up a search and rescue EOD fire department or fire brigade and a a CBRN capability um, under the auspices of, you know, reforming the security sector. And so in order to do that, one of the real challenges that we had was, you know, apart from what we might say, you know, NSRAG kind of these search and rescue guidelines, which are well-known internationally, you know, there's really not a standard for firefighting internationally. You know, it just like doesn't exist, everybody kind of does their own things. Um, and so we were really at a loss of like, okay, how do we establish that kind of baseline performance standards? And we had to go to different nations and ask for contributions to be able to help us build out these capabilities. EOD was something that was a bit more uh, because it's, you know, a highly specialized skill set is, is a bit more regulated. So that was fairly easy to do. Um, and there's also you know united nations Mine action standards for eod and things like that then you start getting into things like hazardous materials you start getting into cbrn and then of course there's some military standards and so one of our biggest challenges was really sort of defining the way ahead uh, how do we you know because we all have knowledge from our own careers and our own perspectives and so how do we take that knowledge and then how does it apply and then but more importantly, it, how does it live on beyond us? Because it's it's not about the standards that I understand. It's about the standards that are going to be accepted by the nation we're working with, that they're able to not only integrate but to be able to sustain. Mm. And so, in that case, we we always in type in this type of um, security assistance programs, we always like to look at like international standards, like what can we point to that lives beyond the personality of the person that you're working with, right? And their defined experiences, and so we. In many cases, especially in the emergency management piece, um, it, is, it is sort of severely lacking in terms of international guidelines. And so we had to put a lot of things together. Um, and fortunately, we had um, some very good partners and very good cooperation. And and so we were successful in that endeavor and, and we were able to do that. But it, it comes down to having the ability to not only know your own job, but the ability to deconstruct your job. Right. So what are the basics of your job that you need to be right. able to do? and then to be able to translate that over and then rebuild that. And that's one of the biggest challenges that that uh, we had in front of us was actually deconstructing what we thought was right and then integrating into their culture and their society.
0: Mm, that's great. And when you say sustainability, has it been sustained in Kosovo?
1: Yes. Yeah, so it's been sustained in Kosovo, but you also have to be very careful in terms of, you know, we, we often have great ambitions for large projects, right? Uh, we want a 127-man, you know, urban search and rescue task force. Uh, and the next question is, are you going to be able to pay for that in five years, you know, after mm-hmm. we're gone? Uh, and so there's all sorts of costs that go with that. You know, for example, one of the challenges that, you know, that came up with this specific project was the fact that not only was was NATO standing up the security force and reforming it, but there was it became a question of how are they integrated into the response mechanisms in the in, as a nation, right as a government? And so how are they integrated? and so this started to to merge over into this interagency cooperation and then you have to start asking questions about, well, how would the government respond to a crisis that requires a whole of government approach? Mm-hmm. And so what we found interesting to your to your question there was, We started talking about, of course, national response planning, you know, doing exercises and things like that. And then from, you know, say a Western perspective, we say, okay, well, we got to do an an exercise and, you know, the government comes back or the institutions come back and they go, "Uh, we don't have the budget for overtime for all that. So you're like, yeah, that's a nice idea, but, you know, we can't do that. And then it gives you that reality check of like the environment you're dealing with.
0: Hmm. You know, you mentioned um, about military and the understandings you have from being in the military. Um, Just just as we wrap up, people that wanted Mm. to get into doing what you're doing, if they wanted to pursue a career in doing what you're doing, often our students are from a military background. So what what are some of those skill sets that you know you brought with you from the military that people who are involved in military services um, could really double down on? could really invest time in mm. um, honing those skills and those understandings to be really effective doing what you're doing in the future.
1: I think some of the skills that have become most effective um, are essentially in planning and then project management because everything that's done internationally is sort of project-based. So it's mm. always an issue of time, people, resources and money and you know having to have a set objective. Again, we talk about kind of deconstructing things or reverse engineering projects need to be able to reverse engineer your your end state and to be able to plan that out in terms of a project and work breakdown structures and there's all sorts of other terminologies out there you know theory of change all these things but at the end of the day it's your ability to have a a clear vision of where you need to go and to deliver these defined you know um, objectives and deliverables over time and and to be able to do that and that planning aspect is such a critical aspect and and I think what the military provides to many people is the ability to to sort of get used to that because it's very indoctrinated the the planning piece, you know, and, and I took many courses from defense planning to comprehensive operational planning and, and things like that. And that's really something that you get used to and you really need that in terms of international work uh, is to be able to have that planning aspect. And, and I think the, the structure is good. Um, the, the structure that you learn in the military is good as far as having that sort of vision and to be able to plan things out. And I think you'll find that is gonna help you tr- dramatically in the international space.
0: Hmm. Well, Carl, thank you for what you're doing. And and I I really love that um, people particularly who have been in the military and have so many skills and so many um, capabilities, they often don't recognise just how powerful their learning and their skill set really is and how they can make an impact going forward, not just in their local community, but also on on a global scale. So thank you for the work that you're doing and thank you for being with us on the podcast as well today.
1: Oh, thank you very much. It was my pleasure.
0: What's the best way for people to get hold of you if they want to reach out to you?
1: Yeah, so I sort of live on LinkedIn. So if anybody wants to find me, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, and then, of course, you can also go to Capacity Building International, uh, the website there, capacitybuildingint.com. And we also have our, our website there in case anybody wants to know more about what we're doing.
0: Awesome. And anyone else who's interested in a qualification in emergency management, which is internationally accredited, go to www.uard.university. Thanks, Carl.
1: Thanks a lot.